Welcome to Influencers for Good. Influencers for Good is a new ethical news platform dedicated to featuring incredible people doing incredible things for the planet according to five thematic pillars. People, planet, products, purpose, ideas and solutions. It is time to bring followers to what matters most, our planet, and the good people working hard to protect it. A lot of the people and ideas featured on our platform and podcast don't have millions of followers, but they should. The problem is that they're too busy working really hard, and we're here to give them a lift up with your help. So don't forget to follow, subscribe, and share when you like our work. Um, welcome to Influencers for Good. We're very excited to have today someone that I have stumbled upon through the internet and been I would say almost talking for a good part of maybe a couple of years at least. <laughs> and um, it's the fantastic Christina Zenato. Um, Christina, welcome. Thank you for joining us. And I think I'm going to let you do a little introduction of uh, who you are and what is it that you do. Hi, Natasha, and thank you for having me. As you said, my name is Christina Zenato. I'm originally from Italy, um, but I grew up between Central Africa and I've been for the last 30 years living in the Bahamas where I operate as a, uh, in a nutshell, a scuba diving professional, behaviorist and ecologist, as well as a cave ocean explorer. And I specialize in technical diving and shark interactive dives. My core is defined by three words exploration, education, and conservation. I do believe the world explores our heart and we need to explore what is the unknown, but sometimes I believe we also need to explore what is the known. And I've found out that very quickly with the sharks. When I started going in the water with sharks, the known was uh, this will happen and that will happen and sharks do this and sharks do that. And that was the known that was presented to me. So I was 22 years old. I traveled to the Bahamas to learn how to scuba dive. And on my first dive, I immersed in the water with sharks. And it was kind of like a revelation. I always wanted to have sharks for friends. I wanted to be an underwater scuba ranger with sharks for friends. And here I was learning how to scuba dive and there's sharks just swimming around me. In a week time, I completely changed my life. I left everything I had and moved to the Bahamas to start all over again so that I could be on the water with sharks. And you knew there and there that that was the right thing you wanted to do and all you wanted to do. That was like sure or did you have like some um, doubts? I knew there and then that that's what I wanted to do for that moment. Um, I was 22. I mean, if you if you don't jump and try things at 22, when are you going to do it? And for the first year, I was convinced that I will do this, get the diving out of my system, enjoy what I was doing, and go back home and have a real job. But it changed very quickly. I think it changed within the first eight months of, of my being in the Bahamas and diving. I realized that there was more to it. Something specific happened that made you realize that, or it was just a progressive? It was a progressive. Uh, falling in love. I was a progressive. My original job was hotel front desk, and I was diving on the side. And I was like, oh, okay, this, this is wonderful. I can use this hotel front desk in my five languages to travel in different places in the world. And every hotel resort where I work, I'll add diving. 
So my original idea was to keep my my training, which was in my background in hotel management, and move from location to location to location and just have diving on the side. But within eight months, I was a dive master and everybody was telling me, you should be a dive professional. You're so good at it. You're so this, you're so that. And I was like, okay, let me let me try this. And so I tried it and, and then it was progressive. It was progressive in both fields, the technical and the shark. Um, when people ask me nowadays, oh, how do I get to do what you do is my road was convoluted. My road was blocked. My road was uh, open and then demolished and taken away and then something else opened off to the side. And it just kept on, on, on changing. I think the core of it was that absolute gut passion that I realized I had for the water for the ocean, for being submerged, for being in there. And that was the driving force. That is uh, the driving force. It is an absolute, it's a passion, it's an obsession. Um, I married a few years back for the first time. And I always joke, I tell, I tell people, I said, my husband knew he was entering a threesome. There's me and my love for him, and then there's me and my my absolute love for anything water, anything that has to do with the oceans, with their conservation, with being out there. With and luckily he has the same lover, so we share the same love. <laughs> and so. You know, I understand the fascination for being underwater. It's a magical experience. And of course, you already had some fascination and love for shark before it evolved. So you were never scared. You always saw them with curiosity, with an openness. Never at any point you had the fear-based emotion that everybody has around <laughs> I come from an ocean family. Both my mom and my dad come from the ocean and took me through the ocean I cannot remember the first pair of fins, mask, and snorkel I had, but I remember that each summer as I was growing up, it was the most exciting time is to go and buy the growing fins and mask and snorkel that would fit my growing body. But I think the biggest lesson that I learned from my parents and the rest of the family was that there are no monsters in the sea, only the ones you make up in your head. And it was a fundamental lesson that came from my mom, from my grandma, from my dad, from my mom's uncle who was uh, sailing around the Mediterranean with his wife, my mom's aunt, and and all of that immersed into this, yes, the sea may be dangerous. I think the biggest lesson I was is the, the learning the winds and the waves. It was not about the animals. It was about the sea can sweep you away. <laughs> this is what you need to learn. But also the sea is the source of life, uh, is the source of marvel, is the source of discovery. I had that in my blood for sure. I... That's amazing. And so, so I'm trying to imagine in my head how these daily encounters with the underwater life have evolved over time for you. And then one day you found a shark that came to you with a hook. Uh, no, it was not like that. Uh, the the daily encounters were part of uh, organized shark dive that had been started by a gentleman known as Ben Rose. And so I came here, I saw the sharks in the water, I found Ben, 
uh, and all of a sudden I was just like, I literally was, oh, you have sharks in the water, which is kind of silly. And he was like, mm-hmm. Cause my dad told me, and, and it was true. It's very difficult to see sharks. Sharks are very elusive animals. They don't like people. They don't like noise. They don't like bubbles. And he said, it's going to be very, very hard for you to see sharks. And then I landed in the Bahamas and just like, dozen Caribbean reef sharks swimming around me on my dive number one. I was like, "Uh uh-huh, okay. So Ben had started here with the Caribbean reef sharks, and then I basically started with him. But he retired, and as as, uh, as I started working with the sharks more and more, obviously I started watching them. And I went into that, well, that was the known, but the known did not match with what I was observing. So what I've been told about sharks, not primarily from my family, but in general, what people believed, what the people even here in the islands believed about sharks was not what I was observing. And it was an evolution. I didn't remove hooks the first day. I was working with the sharks the day I think I removed the hook. And I cannot remember. Everybody wants to know what happened the first time. I say, I don't know. Do you remember the first time you remove a thorn from a dog's paw? Because I don't. But it was that instinct. Okay, because- because it was at that level of confidence, right? Of course, other people would think they would remember because it's not a dog, it's a shark. And it's not a thorn, it's a hook. And it, is, it involves like a, a level of complication that I guess for the regular human, it, it, it's, a, it, it's seen as something very difficult, but to you, second nature, because you see it as what you do in that situation. It was second nature. When, be- you're, when you don't fear the animal. It, no, it's the same like my dog. It was a second nature because we had a relationship. We built a relationship over time. One of the things that I, I, and one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I'm still here is what I call access. A lot of people ask me, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that. And, and I tell you, you need to first decide what part you want of all that you want. And for me, is access. So access is I'm on the island and I have what I call dive side fidelity thousands of dives in the same place with the same animals. At the time, maybe hundreds of dives is what allowed me to go, oh, I see, quote unquote, my shark. Because she's not my shark. He's a wild animal. But I see my shark. I recognize her. I know who she is. And now she has a hook. And I can see the infection. I can see the the behavior that is, she's uncomfortable. And I will reach out and remove the hook the same way I want to remove the thorn out of my dog's paw. Because I want to make that shark feel better. My first reasoning for removing the hook had no ulterior motive of people knowing about me. I mean, we're talking about 95. There's no internet. There is no YouTube. There was none of that. For me, is this shark is in pain. I love this shark. I'm going to remove the hook. As a matter of fact, the first hooks I used to remove, I used to come up on the boat and like absolutely disgusted. I was like, ah, and just literally toss them in the, in the trash. And then somebody asked for them. They said, oh, can I have the hook? I'm like, sure, you can have the hook. And then one day somebody didn't answer it. So I came home and I hung it on a mirror. I have a little mirror in my bedroom and I kept hanging it on the mirror. And at a certain point I had a, a bundle of them. And by then I was invited, I still remember, I was invited in China. They flew me to China to go and speak on CCTV, organized by the government, to do this talk about how to protect sharks, how shark fin soup is not the way of eating. And it was just like, 
phenomenon. I arrived with these hooks in a bag, and they're like, no, 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 no. And so they give me this beautiful red jewelry, red box, this giant red box where normally you put jewelry. And I said, this is the fit box for your hooks, a box of hope. And so I started putting the hooks inside the box. And then the first, I have pictures from when I first received it. Maybe there was like 20 hooks in it. And now it's exploding. It's over 300. But it was like this, this box. And they're like, no, 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 your work deserves this but yeah everything has been progressive my love for cave diving exploration is i never set off to say i'm just going to do this because i want to become that maybe it is unfortunate i think sometimes today we we put so much pressure or young people put so much pressures on themselves for for that reason instead of going and just doing it for the love of doing it for the sake of doing it they just established these goals and and they want to be dr sylvia earl and it's just like yeah she's 82 she's been at it for 60 years i've been at it for 30 what is the hardest part of what you do the hardest part of what i do i never have closure when when the sharks go, when the shark, I know all of them. I recognize all of them. They have names, they have identification, they have personalities. And one one of them goes, maybe because is somewhat the end of our life cycles, which we can almost guess by time and length that she's been on the side and also looks. We have enough repetition of the same looks when they're towards the end of their lives. But then, you know, you go one week and two weeks and six months and few years, and all of a sudden you're like, she's gone. But you never have that full closure. I think that's, for me, that's my hardest part. I would rather find her body somewhere, which is impossible underwater. I wish I had a closure. Instead, I kind of left with this. I always look into the blue and into the haziness as I see one of the sharks coming in. I'm like, ah, no, she's not her. You said they have names, you recognize them, you have a relationship. Do you, how do you keep, do you keep track of your interactions with them? Like, do you keep like a journal and a diary? Are you actually monitor kind of like Jane Goodall styles when she was in the jungle with the first bunch of chimpanzee or, or it's more something, you, you actually have a log of all these interactions? Yes, mm-hmm. we, lo- we log the dives. It's not all the time, but we try to, and we try to log uh, the weather, because the weather affects the shark's behavior. We log, uh, for example, visibility that affects their behavior as well. We log uh, if there's an external presence in that moment when we arrive. Was there another dive boat? Was there a fishing boat? Was there a glass bottom boat? Was there six boats? Was there a lot of traffic? And then we log the sharks that were present. For example, this time of year, we're logging who has bite marks that means that they mate and then we can monitor maybe if next year they'll show signs of pregnancy we'll monitor all of that so we log their presence per dive uh water temperature all that data that gives us a little bit of a base and that is reason why sometimes when i say well they have the tendency of doing this or this happens during that time is being accumulated through repeated observations and logging of certain patterns related to certain circumstances i 
I did a program and, and we were talking about the fact that like four to five days prior to the arrival of major hurricanes, so three hurricane force of three, four or five, um, what in Pacific it's called as a typhoon, the sharks uh, display erratic behaviors. Erratic behaviors, I usually compare it to the people that went buying toilet paper as COVID was, you know, closing in, which was like, I don't understand why they went for toilet paper and not food and water. But um, <laughs> here in the Bahamas, we went for food and water. The rest of the world went for toilet paper. But that they display the same behavior. They become very agitated. They swim erratic up and down the water column. And I think they might feel the storm coming. I mean, why not? They have a lateral line. They have seven sensory system and they can detect water pressure. When the hurricane comes, it sucks away the weather and the, the barometric pressure drops is one of the biggest thing. You look at the barometric pressure and the faster it drops and the lower it drops, the harder the, the hurricane is going to hit. It pressurizes over the water. So as the pressure diminishes, the pressure diminishes over the water. Automatically, they're going to feel it in their body. They're 450 million years old. There's no way they're not in tune with everything that happens on this planet. You're logged in. You have all these many interactions. How many interactions do you have um, in a week? Like, do you dive every day, more than once a day? What What is the frequency? Depends. Depends. Every week is different. Uh, if we go diving with them, it's usually about two dives of an hour each. And it could be repeated over several days. And then we might have a break because we are doing something else. Maybe we're cave diving or we had a job somewhere else. So it's um, it hasn't been as constant. Uh, things have changed quite a lot. But we tend to do, I'd say, about 8 to 12 dives per week when we're diving with them. We might then go a week without seeing them. And we go back the next week and see them and log them again. So, yes, there are some gaps. And is not constant all the time just because of the nature also of our lives and jobs. Uh, weather is a huge factor. <laughs> when it's rough, you can go out, so you can go and see the sharks as one of them. Um, business is the other factor. If I have a class that is booked for something else, I can go and see the sharks. But otherwise, we have quite a, um, I would say, semi-constant presence. When, when was the moment where, through all this regular interaction, you actually realized that you were building a relationship, that there was real connection. And how how did you feel that? How would you describe that? What was the moment you went, haha, hmm, this is this is not just me diving in fish and there's no empathy. There's actually something going on. I know that they can feel it. I know that I can feel it. I think almost immediately it just took time to be able to transfer that to people to find the my own identity and presence of being able to express this to people without either being ridiculed or belittled and stand my ground in a way. I, within myself, I always felt that. I remember even from the beginning, there was these things about like, I, I need to go and see the sharks. It, and I, in the beginning, it was very selfish. It was me and the sharks. But for me, it was this need. It was a deep, deep need of going and seeing the sharks. I think with maturity, with interaction with people, with conversations, I realized there was quite a lot of things that needed addressing. One was not many shared that obsession and passion and understanding of sharks. So when I talked about sharks, we were like, oh, aren't you afraid they're going to eat you? Aren't you afraid they're going to bite you? Why they don't bite you? And it was like these repeated, uh, very fearful 
perceptions from people that made me realize it's like, okay, I need to bring up the narrative of what it is that I see, feel, experience. So maybe I matured from a 22 into, I just reviewed an interview when I was 25 or 26. I'm like, huh, I was saying some <laughs> smart things back then. That's not bad. <laughs> but I evolved into this, okay, if I want to protect what I love, I need other people to understand my love. I need them to maybe not love them as much as I do, but at least I understand and appreciate the love that I have for them. And how do you do that is you bring up your experience and you bring up some somehow the usefulness of these uh, of these animals. You bring up their role, and and that when I don't think it was like aha moment. It was again an evolution. It's just like wait, the world does not think about sharks the way I do. How do I change this? So I start changing it on the boat during the briefing. I change it after the dive by talking to divers, and then it changed with the article, and then it changed with the the birth of. Uh, social media and, and and then kind of like evolved into what it is now where, where do you think we're right now where, where do you think we're right now because it feels like it comes in waves it you know there are moments where there's some positive conversations that are beginning it's kind of like with the dogs you know we people that have dogs have always known that you can talk to your dogs and the dogs understand and everybody else is like you're crazy it's in your head and then you know, now dogs can talk using buttons and everybody's like, oh, oh, actually they do understand language when they're trained. So now we're in the shark domain where shark eats, you know, they don't need to. Shark have empathy. No, they don't have empathy. Yes, they do. They can connect. We've seen the octopus teacher. So now we're more open to see that there can be, you know, relationship with sea life uh, creatures. And then all of a sudden you have this outburst of the craziness that goes around because one shark does something um, a little bit erratic to someone and then it all it's, does it feel like you're going back into the narrative you have to do extra work to readjust it or to say hang on a minute that's that's not the norm that's just something that went wrong and also you are in the water you shouldn't be in the water you know you are in their domain you shouldn't be in their domain and and, and do you feel like oh this moment bring you back a lot or you're in a position where it's uh, equal opportunity to adjust the narrative that's a tough one um it, and because my my position is biased, meaning the uh, information that I receive from my social media is people that love sharks are following me because they love sharks. Some are curious. There's already a, a positive step. So in my biased little cocoon place, I feel like, oh, wow, the perception has changed. At the same time, then I can say, well, that has changed. The Let's say my cocoon has grown. Right. And so that means if I have all these people that now are interested and positive about sharks, it's definitely changed from 30 years ago. These episodes now bring up the there's always going to be the people like, well, this is what sharks do. And, and they use these exceptions to the rule in order to to prove their theories or their or to express their fears, because at the end of the day is a, a very much a evolutionary fear is like i don't want to get eaten alive it's like good stay in the hut <laughs> out there there's a tigers with a fangs they're going to eat you but <laughs> it is the human nature i don't want to get eaten alive i mean and and the sharks bring up that fear so i then it's manifested in anger and revenge and killing the sharks out of making everything safe because that's humans we are 
But there is a positive narrative where there are people saying, I'm still scared, but I don't want to kill the sharks. I'm still scared, but I do understand it's their territory. So there is a change into the fact that no longer it's my beach, my ocean, my place to dominate. Is there still work to do? Yes. Do these encounters bring up more work? Absolutely. There's also, I think, the biggest job that needs to be done that I find myself doing is we need to separate what is a human interpretation of animal behavior from animal behavior. And I think that has been my biggest sharp behavior is, is, is that is the job is I look at these things and the way they explain it and I'm like, uh, you're looking at it from a human point of view. Not from a shark point of view. And, and when you say shark, that is the other problem. Everybody wants one size fits all answer. And it's like, I'm sorry, there's over 500 species of sharks. I cannot give you one size fits all answer. Imagine if you ask me how to approach a sparrow compared to how to approach an ostrich. Well, one can actually kill you with a kick. The other one, so the sparrow does not believe like the sure. ostrich. They're both birds. Somebody says, well, the nature is the birds. I'm kind of like, no, the nature of the sparrow is different from the eagle. The penguin believes different than the ostrich. Same is the sharks. The smaller sharks in the world is the size of a pencil. The biggest shark in the world is the size of a bus and feeds on caviar, plankton. So my answer to these questions, like, oh, how do I do this, is actually 10 questions. Where are you? What are you doing? Are you on the surface? You're on the bottom? You're scuba diving? You're spear fishing? You're paddle boarding? Is this dire island? Are you in between a seal colony, a bird colony? And this is a great white territory? Is this nurse sharks territory? Are you swimming with Caribbean reef sharks? Are you fishing? And all of this changes the answer. And I think that is where we still have a struggle is people want this one size fits all answer. What do we do if I see a shark in the water? I don't know. Take a picture. Uh, <laughs> The question is, where are you in the water? Where are you in that position? What are you doing? Yeah. Right? What shark are you seeing? Oh, I don't know. I, I don't understand shark positioning. Well, it does make you feel uncomfortable. The fact that you see a shark, usually it's okay. It's like seeing a fish. But if it makes you feel uncomfortable, remember, this is their home, not yours. So slowly make your way back to where you belong, if you can. could be a boat. could be the shore. And, and it's all of this that I think that is the part that we need to still ingrain into people. One size does not fit all. Never will. And so, you know, this long journey of evolution, of understanding, of advocacy and conservation, how many hooks have you removed in the process? Over 300 hooks. And the wow. base is I want that shark to feel good. I want my shark to not have a jaw infection. I want her not to have a skin infection caused by the lure. What I did not realize is as I started removing the hooks, I actually started bringing up another subject, which is very, um, I'm from the Mediterranean, I'm Italian, is, oh, fish don't feel pain. And I had someone attacking me and say, well, sharks don't have the same neuroreceptors that we do. And hence, they don't feel pain. It's like, okay, let's not call it pain. Let's call it disturbed, fastidious, annoying, um, uncomfortable, unnatural. But they do feel something. I watch them. I see their swollen jaws and all that. And that is a concept. I had people saying, I never thought about sharks feeling pain. I never thought 
about the influence that we have in animals in the ocean. So it's not just the hook in itself, but it's what else do we leave behind in the ocean? Nets, garbage, and then you can expand chemicals, noise, light pollution, those things that actually we don't even think about in a certain way. Everybody's familiar with the floodlights and turtles nesting. They use a full moon and you shouldn't have floodlights if you have a house on the beach. Well, imagine what are we doing with all these other things. Heat. Close to certain areas, the water is warmer, caused by the reverse osmosis of water. Uh, certain factories. So all of that exchanges. The hook is, is becomes then symbolic. Into expanding into this conversation is the latest one is, oh, there are so many more sharks by the beach. And it's just like, are there? Or do we have better technologies to see them? Everybody's flying drones this day. So we see more sharks. We see more sharks. It doesn't mean there are more sharks. So sometimes number, numbers by themselves are a straightforward answer, but interpretation by humans is very flexible. So technology brings up this amazing capability to see way more sharks and how many times they swim by people and totally, utterly ignore them with the people not even knowing the sharks are there. So are there more sharks or do we see more sharks? And, and it all starts with a hook. People are fascinated by this concept of removing a hook out of the mouth of a wild animal that in some people's minds could potentially shred you or crush you to death. None of that is true with the sharks I work with. And it expands into, let's look actually, what are some of the serious threats to these animals? And by threatening these animals, we're threatening entire ecosystems. And by threatening entire ecosystems, you know what? We threaten ourselves because ultimately that is a problem. I have people say, oh, sharks are absolutely useless. Name me one thing that they do right for us. Even if I didn't have the answers, the fact that by natural evolution, they've been here 450 million years. That to me is an answer enough. Their role is so fundamental. Otherwise, they would have perished and extinguished themselves as nature is capable of doing when something is no longer into that circle. It's literally part of the foundations of our fragile ecosystems, and that's what maintains the balance. They are the foundation, and they are the last link that actually keeps everything up. Imagine, you know, you pull up a curtain and you hang it by the tip. There's a sharks over there, and then at the same time, they become the foundation. Everybody looks at animals as a pyramid. We actually have to look at them as a net. There is an interactive uh, compatibilities that goes, yes, they are apex predators, some of them, but they're also mesopredators, and it can be prey of some other predators, primarily sharks, but like we're also seeing birds fishing sharks and sharks eating sharks. And they have this primary role of eliminating what is a sick, dead, decaying, injured, but also have very much a, a, a guardian role. That is, I think, the one that we forget about sharks. Sharks are keystone predators. Keystone means by the small numbers, they still manage a large ecosystem, a large environment. And very basic example is similar to the wolves with the deers. The wolves determine where the deers will go and graze based on where the deers can run away from the wolves if the wolves were to approach. 
Sharks do the same. Preys will distribute over a certain territory dictated by the presence of the predators. And as such, what sharks prevent is an explosion of a herbivore population, for example. So from a, from a more personal sort of behavioral perspective, do you feel like you remove those hooks and there's been an expression of relief and gratitude manifested back? Because I've seen, the, I read in some articles that it seems like they come for cuddles or they rest uh, on your leg or they, 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 they kind of seek proximity or contact or I don't know if that was exaggerated by the articles I read, but what is true, what is not, and where can you elaborate more? I can elaborate on, uh, on, on, on all of them a little bit. When I talk about sharks and their reactions, I try not to put in some of my interpretation. So I, rather than say they do this, I say, well, what I see is they don't do this. So when I remove the hook, <clears throat> by nature, an animal will run away from pain. You put the hand on the stove and you automatically pull the hand off the stove. <laughs> You're not going to sit there going, oh, this is really hot. So the yeah. same thing. When attached to a hook, the shark will go, ooh, this really hurts and swim away. The interesting part is that she will come back and let me try again. Swim away. Come back. Let me try again. Swim away. Come back. Let me try again. So nature kicks in and says, you can sit here. And sometimes they pause. They seem to pause. Like they pause. Their tail goes into the sand. They relax for a few seconds. And then nature kicks in. It's like, no, no, no. This hurts. Go away. And then she comes back. So that is one. That tells me that there is an understanding of what I'm trying to do. At what level of understanding, I can't speak for them. But to me, it's pretty deep that the wild animals, although conditioned by my presence, by years and years and years, when in pain, keeps coming back and allows me to try over and over and over again. When then I remove that specific hook, the shark comes back once again. And their behavior is like super relaxed, almost like, that helped. Coming into my lab is not necessarily related with the hooks. That is expressed by certain individuals, usually the ones that have been on the dive site the longest, that I've had the longest relationship with. And so in that one, what I see is a lack of fear and a lack of pain. So when the hook, they come close, allow me to touch them. But the moment I touch the hook, they swim away. With the touch, they come, they nudge me into the stomach, and then they sit there. And I can't say if there's a concept of pleasure. Again, I can't speak for the sharks, but I can say there is a concept of lack of threat, lack of stress, and lack of pain. So my touch doesn't create stress, doesn't create threat, and doesn't create pain. Because if I cause any of those three, I've seen it when I tried to remove the hooks, the shark is gone. It's like, oh, no, no, I don't like this. So yeah. in that moment, the shark says, this is good. This is fine. This is acceptable. Now, when they're in my lap, they're still very aware. So like when I have people that want to film them, I tell them, I said, you need to wait. Wait for the shark to relax. You can't just see the shark in my lap and go, ah, I'm going to come and visit. You can't uh, for many reasons. And a lot of people hold on to these giant cameras with this giant dome. And I'm kind of like, you do realize that looks like a monstrous eye. right? So you need to put yourself into the, the shark's position. So now the shark is laying in my lap on the ocean floor. Sharks, when they stop swimming, they naturally sink. So she's on my lap in the ocean floor. And a 
10 inches diameter monstrosity black eye is swimming towards her. She needs to feel that she's not in danger. So your behavior as a videographer is to relax. So I do see that they're alert, they're aware of their environment, and they're very much deciding who can pet them, who can come close, who can't, or if they want to stay there or not. So I have sharks that stayed seconds. I had sharks that stayed an hour. I had people kneeling next to me. I'm petting the shark. I looked at my student and I said, you want to go ahead and pet her? And the student was so nervous and so excited that as soon as she stretched her hand, the shark will be like nudging away from the person. Thigh to thigh, kneeling down in the sand. My hand is here, her hand is here. I touch a shark, no problem. Her hand comes over to touch a shark, the shark nudges away. Relax, you need to relax. Breathe, huh? relax, touch a shark. The shark accepts the touch. So they're very much aware, they're not in tonic immobility, and it's very much a personal decision. I only have selected it. grandma, crook, uh, natural, uh, are currently the ones that do accept that interaction and that behavior. Hook has been there as long as grandma and, and crook. She's been there for 12 years. She comes in, not just me. I start patting her. As soon as she kind of like starts relaxing, she'll swim away. She's kind of like a little bit of a trickster. She makes you believe I'm going to No. <laughs> and so for 12 years, her interaction is she'll swim by. She'll allow me to pet her. She'll come into my chest. But she never once in 12 years laid in my lap and rested motionless on the ocean floor. Individual preferences and selection. I don't like to compare, but I do it so people understand it better. If you own cats... You exactly know what I'm talking about. You have the cat when you sit on the couch, will jump in your lap and allow you to pet the cat as much as you want. And then there's a cat that lives in your house, feeds, sits by you on the couch. You go to pick it up, pick her up, pick him up. And it's like, no, 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 I'm not interested. What I was very interested in is that that the thought, oh, this cooks deep removed Clearly, this is not just the same group of shark in that area. So the others have come to that location from far away and gone after you remove the hooks. So how do they find both? It? Do you think it's like, is it like a coincidence or is it going to be like some language in the sharks that goes, there's a shark doctor that we know. I'll hook you up to unhook you. Come and we'll take you. Because it, it it's, cannot be just coincidental. Otherwise, it means that in that specific area, there's a lot of overfishing. So a lot of hooks are removed from the same sharks. Oh, really? Which actually makes me determine that some of these sharks are the dominant ones because they're the ones that get to the hooks the fastest. Mm. So to me, those are the powerful sharks. The powerful, the, the sharks that end up with the hook are the powerful sharks. They are the fastest to get over to the fish that's been hooked by a fishers or the hook in itself. Once I start removing the hooks from the sharks, I know something weird happens, something magical, something bizarre happens, is sharks we never seen, never observed, never had on the interactive dive, start showing up in the outer skirts. And they traditionally have hooks. We had that both with sharks we don't know, or local males, the males don't come into the regular interaction. They live on the reef right there. We see them on outer dives, and they only show up when they have a hook. I remove the hook, then I don't see them for months and months and months. Next hook, they show up again. We have a couple of them that just like, 
really, like, one is, his name is Black Spot. <laughs> when he has a hook, he shows up on the dive. When he doesn't have a hook, you'll see him all over the reef, but you will not see him on the dive. That's incredible. And so I do believe there is a communication. And sharks, a lot of species communicate through hormonal secretions. Mm-hmm. I believe that between seven senses, hormonal secretions, their vibrations, uh, brain waves and everything, they're capable of detecting what is going on that I don't know about the sharks that has a hook removed, sends out a certain vibe that communicates other sharks with hooks to come in. Because it's not a coincidence. If I can be there doing my dive. The entire time, the moment I said, okay, now I'm going to dedicate the last 10 minutes of this dive on removing the hooks from the sharks that have been swimming by me, the one I know, the hook, the crook, the natural, the Vulcan that are swimming by the moment I start removing hooks from them, sharks that I've never seen before start seeing in the outer skirts. Now, then it takes a lot of work to convince those sharks to come into, you know, a giant monster clad in metal blowing noisy bubbles to come in and trust me. So then it goes into that work. Uh, one of the most outstanding one that we recently have had, um, we had a new shark showing up on the dive. And we only observed the two previous dives. So once we see a shark, we start looking at her. And I'm like, oh, that's a new shark. They tend to be smaller. And then we look at something that may help us identify them. And so this girl had the top of the um, upper caudal a little bit slanted. We call her floppy. So instead of having like a very straight up tail, the tail looked like a little flag in no wind day. And we call her Floppy. It's like, oh, did you see that girl? Yeah, that one with a floppy tail. Oh, Floppy. So we see Floppy on one dive. Then we see Floppy on another dive. And she's staying on the outside because she's brand new. I'm like, okay. Uh, usually we name them permanently after we observe them for six months or more. So for six months, Floppy shows up on the dive. Then she becomes Floppy officially. On dive number three. I'm down there with the sharks, and all of a sudden, I see this tiny little shark swimming straight towards me, beeline towards me. And she has one of these big lures with triple hooks attached to her pectoral fins, literally dangling off her pectoral fin. And I realize it's floppy. And on dive number three, it makes a beeline straight for me, bumps me into the chest and swims away. I'm like, whoa. Does the loop comes back around, and I go ahead and remove her pectoral fin hook and since that day that shark has been around and behaving like she is one of the mature ones that's super fascinating because if you don't hear this kind of stories you just would never you would never believe it you know it sounds like some sort of a disney pixar intent to build <laughs> empathy with shark world wasn't it just like shark week a week ago or something and everybody was so it sounds like yes it just yeah it sounds like the narrative that you you build up to kind of expand someone's heart chakra so they believe in shark and then it's true and it's it's just fascinating because it just speaks volume to the fact that everything is so interconnected and you can literally build a connection with any animal of the animal kingdom if you take the time to have that respectful approach, that compassionate approach of respecting where they are and where you are at in their world, because it's their world first. I absolutely adore everything you're doing. I almost feel that it doesn't do justice to start talking about all the other things you're doing with the caves and the education in this one podcast. And we probably need to do another one in a few weeks or months down the line just to dive deeper. 
not the pun, into Happy to? into that specific work because uh, it's fascinating. But I uh, t to close a little bit more on the topic of the shark, I just want to um, ask you to think about everything that you've done up to now and the vision that you have in your conservation work where you're at, but also the wishful thinking of where would you want to see. If we can dream for one minute and you put like your biggest dream hat, tell me what would you like to see manifested as a reality in the work that you're doing for the larger community of the shark, not just where you are, but in terms of global awareness, almost like, you know, the biggest shark wish. Biggest shark wish is the understanding they've been here before us and hopefully they'll be here after us but they need to be here for us to be here and i think that is maybe the hugest disconnect is the understanding that we are not <laughs> in a certain way i'm protecting sharks to protect sharks but we shouldn't protect sharks to protect sharks we should protect sharks to protect the future of humanity because the future of humanity depends on the oceans. And listen, we're sending spaceships into space to try to find water on Mars or water here because we know that water is the root of life on this planet. So I hope that the collective conscience of humans is realized that we have a found source of life. It's here on this blue planet. And because it is so vitally interconnected is the understanding that the effort is not into space, but the effort is to change our ways and protect what we have here. Because as far as I know right now, there's no planet B. And we don't have the technology to go and live in space. So I don't know what they're trying to do, but I think the race is about doing something for where we are. So my dream is it can start with sharks, it can start with oceans, but it's the understanding is just we need them, they don't need us. They'd actually do a little better without us. One closing thought. This is really not a job, clearly, for you. I mean, it, 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 it has a part of it that is a job, but it seems like a calling and a purpose, purposeful work um, that you're committed to, I guess, for life and until the end. This is influences for good and let, let's say it first and clear. This is to showcase stories from amazing people that should be the real influencers, the people that should be followed because they're doing the great work. But as I told you yesterday when we were doing our pre-chat, they're so busy doing the real work that they don't have the time to have a social media team to actually act and live like influencers. So here we are to help them amplify even more what they're doing to let them be more discovered, to let them be more followed so that the you know, followers have powers. They have powers to bring you funds, to bring you visibility, to amplify these lessons, messages that you have in a much simpler way. So if you want to educate when you have two million people following you, that message is follows the two million people. So let's try to get used to the two million people, Christina Donato. Yeah. And uh, um, what would you like to achieve if you had this open channel, what would be your call to action? What people, what can people do on a large scale to help you amplify what you're trying to do? Be wild. This is like the dream space. Be wild. What would you do? What would you need most to, to amplify what you're doing right now? Is it like a bigger amount of funding or more people on board? Or would, 
a program to educate, your own program to educate people. Let's put the wish out because you don't know who might be receiving this. It would be for sure more funding uh, to support. I, li- I like to do direct education, so host young people, which we do out of our own pocket. So more funding to host more, to uh, spread this at uh, the very empirical way. So be in the water with us, with the sharks, so that I can educate that. But then also more funding so that I have more time to do an education. For me, being able to have a speaking engagements in which I can share the story, their story, and what we're here for at the wider level, at the different audience, not on a fan club, but actually on those that are against. So the United Nations, if I could speak at the United Nations about shark behavior, understanding of shark and shark behavior, and maybe get one person of that level of power beyond the common conception of the word shark and expand it into what shark means for me. Fantastic. Well, that's the wish. Let's put it out there. UN, anybody working at UN, you're listening to the podcast. You get in touch because we need to get Christina to talk at the next assembly and educate everybody with her amazing experience. Um, thank you so much. I'm like, I could talk to you for like two weeks. I have a million other questions, but our time is pretty much finished. Um, but I definitely want to do this again because your cave explorations and all the other work that you're doing, it's also equally fascinating, especially so interconnected to this concept of the fragile ecosystem and how one thing is so dependent to the other and we need more knowledge about that. Um, so we will definitely schedule another one. Thank you so much. And we'll hope to have you on the next episode. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Influencers for Good podcast. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. If so, don't forget to like and subscribe. Also check our news platform, influencersforgood.blog, for more content about our guests or to collaborate with us. Thank you.